Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're doing a Groundbreakers Q&A with the activists artists. Four people who changed people's minds, shifted public opinions, and gave a voice to an entire class of people in California, all through their art. The Chicano movement, known as El Movimiento, was a major effort in the 1960s and 1970s to extend Mexican-American civil rights and empowerment. A major part of El Movimiento was the artists. Through their murals, posters, and paintings, they highlighted the plight of Mexicans in the U.S. They created a Chicano worldview, and they generated a cultural renaissance of art in California. And by teaching art to their students, everyone from grade schoolers to graduate students to prison inmates, they are keeping El Movimiento going. And especially now, during this time of DACA lawsuits and immigration issues, they're inspiring a new generation of activist artists in California. Join us and listen to four California groundbreakers. Juana Alicia, Malakias Montoya, Juanishi Orozco, and Esteban Vila tell stories about their lives, their passions, their beliefs, their politics, and how they blend them all together in their art. Hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. We're a civic engagement organization. We're focused on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. My name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm the executive director. And tonight we're holding our first Groundbreakers Q&A with activist artists. And what I mean by a Groundbreakers Q&A is, um, usually we've been having panel discussions about topics, about art, about agriculture, but also there's people with really good stories about how they created the art, what they do in agriculture. So besides talking about a topic, they're also gonna be talking about themselves and their lives and the interesting things that they have done and what they're doing. So it's really a Q&A with groundbreakers. So this one tonight we're holding is about, like I said, activist artists and the reason why I put it together was because I was down in Los Angeles uh, earlier this month and I was in Boyle Heights, which is a neighborhood near downtown Los Angeles, which is getting a lot of buzz. The, the Walt Disney Theater is there, a lot of uh, design uh, is there, a lot of museums. It's getting uh, a lot of buzz. And next door is Boyle Heights, which has a lot of history, a lot of culture, uh, a big Latino population, a lot of art on the walls. They're having kind of their clash, I guess that I would say, in terms of gentrification. And there is art through the decades that show who, who has lived there, what has happened, and what is happening now. And that made me think about, right now, there's so much happening in terms of politics on a national level, international level, and here in a state level. So when I was looking at the art down in Los Angeles, it made me think, you know, we have so much art on the walls of the history here, and there's so much happening here. 
with immigration, DACA. We covered that in a couple of other events. So I just started researching and I was reading about El Movimiento, I hope I'm saying it right, uh, which was happening in the 60s and 70s in California and I guess in the, in the Southwest, the Chicano movement. So to me it was like, I heard so much about black power in Oakland, but it sounded like there was also like Chicano power happening too in terms of civil rights and Mexican pride. And so a lot of the artists that were involved in that were also activists in many ways. Uh, so we have four of those artists who also were activists, who worked in the fields, who taught art, who made statements, uh, did really interesting things and are still doing it today. And I thought very inspiring. So especially in today's times, I thought it'd be interesting to talk to them about what they did and what they're still doing today. So I'm going to start, uh, but first of all, before I say thank you to the panelists, which I will, I wanted to give some special thanks to people who made this panel possible. Uh, first of all, to our event venue, our uh, owner, the owners of the event venue that we are trying out for the first time, the church basement, I want to say special thanks to R. Aguilar and Max Archuleta for letting us hold the event here. I also wanted to say special thanks to Juan Carrillo at the Latino Center of Art and Culture in Sacramento and Leslie Sokowitz-Montoya for putting me in touch with the people up here on stage and helping me make this possible. Also, thank you to our volunteers, Deb Colleen, Alan Young, Scott Eggert, who's also on our board of directors for checking guests in and making them uh, feel at home. I hope they have also steered you to the strawberry agua fresca that's in the back, it's free of charge. It's very good. And then just briefly, I'm the moderator, I'll be asking questions, and then you, the audience, will ask questions at the mic right there in the middle. I'll let you know when it's, you're ready to go up and, and ask, and let's get started. I always let the panelists introduce themselves since they know themselves the best. So I wanted to start briefly with the gentleman on my left. I just wanted to ask you your name, your current role briefly, you know, what you are doing right now, and for a personal note, what is a favorite work of art that's not your own, that really speaks to you? It could be your favorite work of art, a favorite work of art, but you look at it and you, it just really speaks to you in some way and why. So name, what you do, favorite work of art. That's, I know it's a lot. <laughs> Okay, I'll try to remember all that. I'll, rem I'll remind you. Yeah, uh, my name is Esteban Villa, um, a retired art professor from Sac State. Uh, I taught art and muralism for uh, 35 years. <laughs> and, um, and then I retired in 1995, so uh, it's just so wonderful to see that my teachings and also Malachias and uh, all, Juan Alicia, all, all teachers, that have made a difference, a difference. And art is a vehicle, art. Art, music, dance, theater, in other words, the humanity. So that's me, Esteban Villa, co-founder of the Royal Chicano Air Force. And what's a piece of art that speaks to you? Any art that that you that you um, see and you just I it calls to you it says something. Okay, 
All right, I'll, uh, let me just put this out um, just a little bit harder hearing, so I'll try to um, um, do the best that I can. And uh, <laughs> specifically, your question was? What, what is a work of art that is not your own that you like to look at because it just speaks to you in some way? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, when I was at CCAC, the California College of Arts and Crafts, the first thing I wanted to do was identify with some ethnic painters, Goya, Rivera, Siqueiros, Orozco, Tamayo, Salvador Dali, anything that sounded like, <laughs> uh, that I could identify with, you know, rather than, uh, you know, just the French Impressionist. So that, to me, started me off and uh, made me realize that, uh, that there was something inside of me that wanted to uh, identify, identify an art history so that um, uh, I could feel proud uh, of uh, contributing, contributing after I graduated from CCAC to start an, something, start an art club, a uh, uh, movement, so to speak, Un movimiento de arte, música, danza, y ballet folklorico, uh, and, and that's what I pursued. And, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, it doesn't take a lot of uh, hundreds and thousands of people to start a movement. It could be started by one person, one Einstein, okay? or maybe two people, Fidel Castro and <laughs> Che Guevara. So me and Montoya were the only two Mexicans in college in those days. And, uh, and then pretty soon there was three of us, Malakias came <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm gonna ask you about all that uh, and more because I have specific yeah. questions okay. about how you got started. All so, right. So next. that's my answer. <laughs> that's your answer. All right, and next gentleman. So same questions? Yes, name. Okay, Juanisha Rosco, original member of Royal Chicano Air Force. Uh, never graduated from college, even though I attended about 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we created back then in the early 70s a Centro de Artistas Chicanos, along with Rudy and Juan and Esteban and, and Jose Montoya in the Body Art program that took artists, students off campus, and put us in the community to work with the communities. Work actually in the barrios, work with the high school students and the, the preschool and the elders. And so we, were, we did all that throughout the 70s and 80s, gee, almost up to the 90s and almost up to 2000. And then the other thing that I was involved with, I was also one of the artists in residency with the California Arts Council. I did 30 years with them, and then smacked with the artists in the schools. Did 30 years with them, and they're based here in based here in Sacramento. Well, the Central Valley. Central Valley. Not just in Sacramento, but outside Vacaville, Fairfield, uh, Winners, Yolo, Lodi. Gee, where, uh, I did a, a year at the Youth Authority in Stockton, so we got around. Roseville, Rancho Cordova, Folsom. So taught in a lot of schools throughout the whole area, not, not just here in Sacramento. Even though I did do high schools here in 
Sacramento Middle School. So. And I do have questions because all of you are educators, so I do have a specific questions about teaching art and, and how later on. Thank you. Thank you. Next up. Thank you, Esteban. Juan Alicia, as he said. Um, so happy to see everybody here. Um, so my role is a painter, sculptor, muralist, illustrator, grandmother. Um, and I'm so happy to see Tere Romo, art historian. Yay. Juan Carrillo, former director of the California Arts Council. And Leslie Sakowitz Montoya here too great um, art photographer and arts advocate. And um, my favorite work of art would be very, very difficult to select. But one, there's two I have to talk about. One is the Guernica uh, by Pablo Picasso, remembering the Civil War, or the bombing of the small town of Guernica, which set off the um, wars of fascism that led to the Second World War. And that work of art really altered the world. And it was so powerful that the United Nations had to hide it behind a curtain for years because they were afraid to show the truth. And the other piece would be, um, hard to say, but La Benadita, The Little Deer, by Frida Kahlo, where Picasso's work was explosive and grand and monochromatic. Um, Frida's delicate, feminine interior talks about human vulnerability, but also the vulnerability of the ecosystem and a strong identification of her spirit with the ecosystem. So those would be my favorite. And finally, last but not least. Malakias Montoya, and I'm an artist, ex-professor, and a muralist and a printmaker. And um, my favorite artist uh, when I was in high school, uh, at that time I was trying to find a Mexican painter, somebody who had a, a name that, I, that was familiar to me. I remember uh, being in the library once and finding a, a painting in a history book, art history book, and uh, it was uh, Camille Pizarro. Well, Pizarro was very familiar to me because we had neighbors in, in that little town that were named Pizarros and they were all Me Mexicanos. So I walked around for about three or four days just so excited that I had found somebody with a Spanish surname and he was just, and I kept showing it to my friends. And finally, one day the librarian called me, uh, called me aside and said, Malakias, could you come here a second? And I walked over and she said, you know that Camille Pizarro is not a Mexican painter. I said, uh, well, he has a Spanish surname, a Mexican name. And she said, no, he's a French Impressionist. His name is Camille Pizarro. Well, that was it, because in high school we didn't learn anything about other than Van Gogh, Picasso, and them. When I got to the university, that was the same problem. Uh, I didn't, uh, the professors were doing art that was not at all uh, did not at all touch me, did not make me excited or anything. In fact, I used to think, how can grown men sit there all day long and just throw paint up on a canvas? 
and uh, they, they didn't say anything. Uh, and even in, at the University of Berkeley, I didn't know, they didn't know, they never mentioned Pierre, Siqueiros, Rivera, or Orozco unless they mentioned them in folk artists. Uh, and it wasn't really until, and like Via said, there were so few of us, uh, so we were easy to find, and we would talk. Those of us who were artists, we would discuss what we were doing, and we all found out that we were all having the same problem. We didn't understand that art, and we just assumed, and they implied that we just didn't know art, that it would come later as we learn about art. Uh, and in these discussions, there was people who had been to Mexico and coming back, talking about these uh, three Mexican painters that were just amazing. And then we started to look them up and found the thing that thrilled me the most was that the work that they were using their, we, their work to speak about the conditions that the Mexican people were having in Mexico. And the professors at my university kept saying, Art should just be something of beauty, that you don't use it to propagandize. And uh, I said, what if I just want to express myself? Well, y you can express yourself, but the thing that they didn't understand was that coming from a different background, you want to say different things. And so that was the beginning of a group of artists in Berkeley, including Villa, uh, Jose Montoya, we started to get together on Friday nights, we'd all bring our work, and we would discuss what it was that we were doing. So we became critics of our own work, and little by little we started to learn uh, more about art than what we were learning at, uh, at the university. And that became one of the first uh, collectives, you might say, was Mala Efe, Mexican American Liberation Art Front. And that's how that became uh, and it's still talked about today. And I'm, yeah, I'm going to ask questions about that l later on. So I, I want to say thank you again to all to, to you for coming here and, and talking about, about art and, and your life. So I have a question for each of you. I want to start with Juana. I thought it was very interesting, uh, the, your pathway into art and how you mixed it with activism. Because when I was reading about Juana, uh, it was interesting how she grew up in Detroit and somehow you met Cesar Chavez and he personally recruited you to come to California. Uh, you spent time working for the United Farm Workers and you spent time working in the fields in Salinas. And actually I did see one mural that's no longer around Las Lechugueras, which really struck me because it seemed like that was really uh, inspired by your time working in Salinas. So I should also mention, for those of you who haven't gotten a sheet, I did put in the back, um, it's stapled, but uh, a few samples of art from each artist so that you can see as we talk uh, what we're talking about. So one, I, I guess I just wanted like a brief description of how how did your experiences, you know, meeting Cesar Chavez, working for him, working in the fields, how that inspired both your art and your activism and blending them together? Was there a, a, a straight path? Did it zigzag? How did, it, how did those two come together for you? Uh, well, there was no straight path and it zigzagged all over the place, but I grew up in downtown Detroit, <clears throat> 
near the murals, uh, Detroit Art Industry murals of Diego Rivera, and my parents took me there when I was young, and so I had a role model very early, um, and I spent more time there than in my junior and senior years in high school. Um, <clears throat> and when I met Cesar Chavez, I was um, already making prints, screen prints, for the UFW, the United Farm Workers Union. How, how old were you then? 17. 17. Because um, my mother was um, a labor organizer and became a labor attorney after her children grew up. And so she worked with the farm workers. And I met Cesar on one of his national tours. And I showed him the posters. And he said, come to Salinas. And you can work for El Malcriado, which was the farm worker newspaper. I'm doing either cartoons or photography. And I just um, took a train out to Salinas with a Dodge, a draft Dodger boyfriend of mine who is from Canada, and um, left him somewhere on the road and hitchhiked down to Salinas and got my room and board and $5 a week working for the union and soon understood that I would learn a lot more from the people in the fields than the people in the field office and ended up working in the fields till I was pregnant with my son who's running around with my grandchildren. Uh, worked in the fields till I was seven months pregnant. And um, it was a long story, you don't need to hear the whole thing, but um, I was trying to make art uh, the whole time, trying to be a mom, trying to earn a living. And um, painting. I started painting murals in, in Watsonville and Salinas with the uh, migrant education program. Um, but you know, I grew up at the time of the Vietnam War, the Chicano Moratorium, and the feminist movement. And so um, all of those uh, left a very strong imprint on me. And in an all-black African-American uh, milieu in Detroit, um, where I attended Black Panther meetings, and um, I felt very moved by the example of the black civil rights movement. So when I came to Salinas, it was really the first time I was in um, such a majority Mexican community, because we're a small community in Detroit, or we were, it's pretty big now. Um, and so um, I've never seen a, a separation between art and activism because there were so many good examples. One of my mentors and role models was the great black muralist, John Biggers. Um, but anyway, I think that's enough. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good start. It's a lot of people. Um, and Malachias, also, you in the in the you grew up in a farm worker's family, one of seven children, uh, and your I think I read in your bio that your parents uh, you grew up in Albuquerque, but you moved to the Central Valley, and they didn't read or or write. You joined the Marines, right, and then you went to UC Berkeley. You used the GI Bill to go to Berkeley, like many people did. And then you made a career as an artist, and as you mentioned, the founder of the Mexican-American Liberation Art Front. So I guess I have a similar question for you, like I have for Juana, in terms of your life experience, what you saw, what you grew up with. Uh, how did that shape you as an artist? How did that shape you as an activist? How did you blend those two together and, and then, you know, 
use those to create the liberation art front and, and really expand your, your career as an artist? Uh, <clears throat> well, at a very young age, I think uh, I realized and, uh, that art was another voice, that I could speak to that voice, and I always felt much more articulate using art to speak for me. And I wanted to talk about the conditions that I had seen and experienced as a young boy, um, how my parents were treated, how we uh, were treated. And um, that gave us, uh, art gave me that vehicle that I could use to talk about. I think uh, Cesar Chavez, when he came about in the 60s, also uh, gave us a lot that we could paint about. I mean, um, at one time growing up, I was, uh, felt, to, felt ashamed of my mom and dad because they were farm workers, and they'd come to school in their uh, work clothes, they were always dirty, and uh, they didn't speak English, so they were hollering at us in Spanish. And um, so it wasn't until later when I saw Sister Chavez and what he was doing that I realized that my parents were people who contributed to the wealth of this nation. And that just, you know, gave you a, a lift. It made you proud of who you were now, whereas before it wasn't the case. And I think that art became, I wanted to keep using art to speak about that. To, uh, to look at, that my mother could look at herself picking cotton or picking grapes and, and feel good about who she was. And it certainly made me feel good. Um, yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So Esteban and Wanishi, I know you started, you had worked uh, with Malakias in Oakland, you met and you were creating art and then you came to Sacramento and started the Royal Chicano Air Force. Uh, I know there's an interesting story about how that got the name, but I wanted to ask also, when you started that, what did you, what did it turn into? You know, uh, it sounds like there was teaching, community-based. Um, you made it very Sacramento-centric because we're here in the Central Valley, right? So agriculture is all around us. Uh, Joe Serna, who's a big name, or he's passed, but he was definitely a big name in Sacramento and politics, was a major supporter. So I just wanted to get a little history of how you came here to Sacramento, how you decided to start a collective, how it got its name, and what it, what it turned into since then. Who would like to start? Esteban. Okay, um, you know, when Jose Montoya and I came to Sacramento, it was 69, 70, it was to participate in the Felito program. There were scholarships by the federal government, you know, to use money, you know, for this purpose, exactly. You know, and uh, so uh, we, uh, it was hard at first getting started with this movement, being physically active, you know, because Jose and I, we were high school teachers, and then we were disturbed. Cesar Chavez came into town and wanted the artist to paint murals, silkscreen posters, banners, flags, 
So there were, there went our, you know, ideal um, um, contributions, you know, to the art of this country. You know, American art, you know, with uh, uh, Wayne Tebow and Pop Art and Andy Warhol, and that's who we had. So we started looking upon ourselves and um, realized that, um, uh, um, you know, once you light the fuse, uh, I had trouble getting people in my class. One issue was walking by, hey, you need a class <laughs> unit? Yeah, man, you know, I can't get it. And then for my <laughs> <laughs> Rudy Cuellar, he signed up for my class, and Louis the Foot Gonzalez, and uh, Tere Romo, and a lot of women artists. Juan Alicia reminds us that women were part of this movimiento because at first Montoya didn't include women, and he got confronted by them. And while they were confronting Jose, I snuck into a beer joint in San Francisco, and I said, I don't want to be here. <laughs> but um, after the fireworks were over and women said, yes, we are part of the, of the uh, movement, uh, and then I came back on the stage and <laughs> it was safe. <laughs> so um, what I'm saying to all the young people listening out there, looking in, Si se puede. Uh, just believe in yourself, build yourself up, take your, uh, apply your education, apply it into murals, dance, music, theater, poster, everything, and uh, put it into practice. Because if you don't put your education into practice, in terms of using art, murals and so forth, you might as well have stayed home you know, and watch football or something, if you don't put your education into practice. So that was the beginning. Cesar Chavez marched into town. He uh, knew the Royal Chicano Air Force. I'd already heard about it, you know, and... Uh, How did it get its name? Uh, Cesar Chavez? No, Royal Chicano Air Force, because that's definitely a very distinct name, and you wouldn't expect... Royal Chicano Air Force yeah. for art. So how did it get its name? How did it get its name? Um, I can answer that. Okay. <laughs> uh, when Jose and I landed on campus, you know, most of the faculty didn't welcome us, you know. They don't know what do these boys want, you know. <laughs> and uh, they didn't invite us uh, uh, and welcomed us. So um, the, there was ethnic studies, Sam Rios, Dr. Rios, and, um, and Joe Serna, and uh, we later became a mayor, uh, picked up, and they started listening to us, you know? And, and the, I wrote to Connor Air Force, actually started at, in, a, in Sacramento, it's an educational movement, believe it or not, uh, universities, uh, city colleges, uh, high schools, even elementary schools, and a revival, a renaissance of cultural, the culture the, from where we come from. Um, you know, the Mayas, the Aztecas, the Pyramids, the Mariachis, the Folkloricos. <laughs> it was wonderful, you know. So little by little, it grew big, thanks to people like you out here in the audience and people out there listening. Uh, please contribute 
you weren't there from the beginning because you weren't born yet. <laughs> but you can continue in your way, in your way, to continue with El Movimiento Artístico de Atlan. Because if you don't do that, it'll come to an end and the, our efforts will die, you know, if, unless you pick up the baton and continue. And uh, so we, after uh, Malakias, we left, uh, he was with the um, uh, Mala F, the bad F. That was the acronym, right? <laughs> Mexican-American Liberation Art Front in the Bay Area. And while he was over there, we were over here with Sinan, said, let's do that here too and call it number two, right? You know, <laughs> Mala F number two. Let's do something different. Anyway, we came up with a Rebel Chicano Art Front. Rebel Chicano Art Front. And, um, you know, if you notice the acronyms, every time we do a mural in town with spray cans and graffiti, we put Royal, you know, uh, RCA up. And the people wanted to know, are you with the Royal Canadian Air Force? And we go, you know what, actually we belong to the Royal Chicano Air Force, you know? And they go, I didn't know you guys had planes. How can I join? What kind of planes? You know? Well, how do, I, how do I sign up, you know? And so we're more well known at the Royal Chicano Air Force rather than the Rebel Chicano Art Front. And it's history now. So we want everyone out there to make your history and be part, part of this movement, Artisco. You are welcome. Please, please, don't tell your children to be afraid of us and to stay away from them guys <laughs> and them women too. You know how they are. <laughs> No, be positive, be positive. And, uh, and then we can make and leave this world in better shape than what it is now. And I don't have to tell you that this poor mundo, this poor world needs a lot of help. That's where we can come in, make it better, better. Education, medicine, unemployment, uh, homelessness, loneliness, oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah. anyway, we have a purpose in life, and uh, please, please join us, join us, all you young people. There was a little toddler here already, right? <laughs> Giving some Crayolas and, <laughs> and paintbrush. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, please, uh, and that's, um, I, then I pass some of this on to Juanisi over here. I do have a question. He was one of my first students. He, yeah, and I, and I, I, um, had a specific question for you, Anishi, because okay. you had mentioned that in your intro about teaching. Because one thing it seemed like with the movimiento is uh, community is a big thing, and getting people involved, teaching them uh, education, and it seems like with the Royal Chicano Air Force, education uh, in college, in prisons, um, children was a is is still a big part. So. I was curious about that, the programs that you do beyond just creating art, the programs. Well, you know, all that started, like uh, was says, said, I mean, uh, Esteban said, with the center that we created on, off campus back in the early 70s. And then uh, what I did personally, because the California Arts Council and the Sacramento Metropolitan Arts Commission had artists and residencies in the schools and the communities, 
And as an outreach of the body of our program that Hosanna Stephen created back in the 70s, we went to work in the schools in the communities to teach art, Chicano art. Because our experience on campus, me as a student, and Rudy could verify that too, like what Mel mentioned earlier, there was no art talking about us. So I had some world, world famous artists as teachers, like Joseph Raphael, Carlos Villa, you know, quite a few other men to mention, you know, world class artists that were teaching here at, at Sac State. But part of the, the what took place in their, their classes, they were teaching some Eurocentric stuff that I had no relationship to whatever. I mean, we had no dialogue. And uh, I, I wanted to learn techniques of painting, printmaking and all that. And they would tell me, well, paint what you feel. I go, well, like I feel like busting your face because, man, you're not, teach <laughs> you're not teaching me anything, you know? I mean, I'm not getting anything here. So that's why when, when Jose and Esteban created the Body Art Program, that was talking directly to what I, my life experience. Because I grew up uh, as a farm worker, Rancho Cordova. But back then it was known as Rancho Cordova. Rancho Cordova was about a couple of thousand acres of prime vineyards, orchards, dairies, uh, horse ranches. I mean, it was, it was a prime uh, agricultural center, Rancho Cordova. And now it's over 100,000 uh, suburbians, uh, you know, whatever. But, and then, uh, because I was a, f a farm worker family, every year after the, the harvest, which would be November, my parents would pack us up into a station wagon and, and we'd go to Mexico for three months. November, December, and January. And so in that time span, we would go visit my, my father's village in northern Zacatecas, my mother's Pueblos in Jalisco, and then we traveled the country. And so in the 50s, I got to see the other side of my reality, which is being a Mexicano. What is a Mexicano? Uh, more, you know, much less, what is a Chicano? A hybrid of that, you know. So in my, my early travels in Mexico in the 50s, one of the places that opened my eyes, because I didn't answer the question about who influenced, what artists influenced me, in the 50s, like, we got to go to Mexico City. And then we went to the Presidential Palace. You walk into the Presidential Palace, there's these enormous walls by Diego Rivera, the history of Mexico. Just incredible stuff, you know. So everywhere we went in Mexico City, there was all these murals, Chavez Morados, Siqueiros. My God, you, watch it, you walk up to the Siqueiros, you almost feel like genuflecting, you know. Orozco, the uh, man of fire in, in Guadalajara. And then Chavez Morano, like I said, Leopoldo Mendes, his prince, my God, one of the most incredible masters of the print world, Leopoldo Mendes, talking about the ravages of the Mexican Revolution. And the, and the history of Mexico and the presidential palace, was that Diego Rivera? I, I saw that too, and yeah, so yeah. that was him. Yeah, so all that early, and then the other thing that we got to experience while in Mexico City, in the 50s, this was in like 53, 54, we went to Tenochtitlan, Teotihuacan, Pyramid of the Sun. 
it was just barely starting to excavate. It was still covered with a lot of debris. It's not like what you see it now. It's just a, this ramshackle of rocks on top of it, which you can see these pyramids. And that was Aztec? Aztec city? Pre, 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 okay. By several Way thousand back. years. They were ancient by the time the Aztecs arrived in the Valley of Mexico. And so seeing that in my early youth, seeing the Mexican muralists, seeing Mexico reality, and seeing the pyramids and all that, I mean, that formed my mind, okay, this is, this is what I got to get involved in. So when I hit Sac State, that's what I want to dedicate my, my career to, was, was picking up what they passed on to us as modern-day Chicano artists. And then when we worked in the body art program, I wanted to pass that on to the high school students, middle school, and the, the children, and then the, working with the youth authority. I wanted to pass on my experiences in that. And then when we, in the 70s, when we joined the UFW, and we were part of the big marches that took place throughout the state. I mean, we, we were almost involved in every major march that Caesar had. In fact, we were recruited, along with Rudy and several other members, to be security for, for the marches and be monitors for the march, marches. And then I got selected to be one of Caesar's personal bodyguards because I, I guess I was good at it, you know. So. <laughs> Big Mike Ivara, the head of security, says, you're going with me. And so there was a lot of times at the big marches, I'd be this close to Caesar. But Big Mike told us, you're not to talk to him, you're not to interact with him at all. Your job here is if there's a bullet coming, you take the bullet, not him. And, and there were many, many assassination attempts on Caesar. Oh, there was incredible, just, I mean, in Davis, I guess that was 75, 76, somewhere right there, Kumpa, somewhere around there. Caesar was talking at Davis in the, the park where they do the, the, the markets, the free markets. He was talking to about maybe 300 farm workers. And he had a stage, and he was on the stage, and then part of the security, there was a street right behind the stage. And so part of the security was to check the back, make sure that was secure. And then I was put up on stage behind him, along with Richard Ibarra, his chief of staff, and another guy from Mecha University. And it, it, it was scary that day because there was a guy up in the steeple of a church across the, behind, the, behind the platform that had a rifle. And he was set on taking Caesar out that day, but by the, the grace of, uh, you know, whatever, we were able to squash that attempt. But we lived on the front lines. I mean, the front lines were the front lines. We were facing confrontation, deadly confrontation, every time we worked with Caesar. I mean, it was just right in your face. Wow. I, I, such great stories, and I, I'd like to see if anyone has questions for uh, these four up here. So if you'd like to start lining up at the microphone there in the center, uh, we can start taking your questions, uh, and while you all decide who's going to go first. I'll ask a question for all of you, uh, whoever wants to go first. You know, you talk about the um, inspirations of your art. Who has inspired you in your experiences that have inspired you? How do you, what is your process for creating art? I guess, if you have a vision, you know, how do you put it on a silk screen or a wall? So I guess for, for 
how do you, what's your process for creating art that you want people to see and, and do something active after they see it? I guess, yeah, what is your artistic process uh, for creating art that speaks to people? So, Anishi. Well, okay, nobody wants to jump up, so I'll, you go first. I guess I'll jump up. Well, yeah, you know, uh, working in the, in the communities, they want to see a reflection of themselves. What is their reality? Not just necessarily my reality or my imagery. We work with the community. We work with, with uh, parents, children, you know, all ages. And we take uh, surveys of their reality and then try to mold that into some kind of a, a visual format. That's one method. The other method is when I'm working on my own private work, my own personal vision, I'll take a drop of acid first. No. <laughs> no I don't do that anymore. No, but, I mean, I'm sure that's, well, that's not an unusual thing. thing. In the 60s, that wasn't an influence. You know, so, but no, you can't paint with the, under that influence. You just, you're going at the speed of light and you can't catch up. But uh, that's basically what influences me is, is the experiences that I've had, the community members, and what they want to see on their walls. My question was, I guess, well, what's, the, what's your process for creating art? If you, if you see something that inspires you and you want to put it on you know, a poster or a wall, what is the artistic process you know, that you have for uh, creating art that makes people feel something and want to do something? Well, uh, I think because of my mind, my frame of mind is always uh, creating something that's going to speak to someone. Uh, so whenever, whenever I see something that moves me, uh, it's going to come out in a way that speaks to someone, uh, whether it's a mural or a, a poster or just a drawing. But I think the, in the 60s, we decided that we needed to speak to our communities and one of the best ways was either through a poster because you could do so many of them and put those out throughout the city uh, or a mural where a mural was public to everyone that walked by and they could see it. So it was a way of speaking to our community and uh, so hopefully that they, they see it and they get empowered by what we have, what we're trying to say uh, on the walls or the posters. Um, and I draw a lot, I just, and sometimes I'm drawing and, oh, that looks good, and I'll turn it into something else. Mm -hmm. So how about the, oh, Juana, your artistic process. If you, so, yeah. yes, um, I think it's very similar to my compadres up here, in, in a lot of ways. I've been teaching for 40 years, so I always wait till everybody's quiet before I speak. <laughs> Just the classroom protocol. <clears throat> Not giving you a hard time. Oh. <laughs> and um, I wanted to mention that there's a couple people in the audience that I've collaborated with. One is Miranda Bergman, uh, who's back there on the red rebozo. We've gone to Nicaragua to paint murals together in solidarity with the Nicaraguan Revolution. Um, Rudy Cuellar here, we haven't actually collaborated, but he did, I do honor his work, and 
He did make me an honorary member of the RCAF a few years ago. Um, and uh, gave me a wings. Um, but uh, I think there's so many ways that the creative process happens um, for an artist. W like alluding to what Malakia said, seeing something that inspires us or dreaming about it. I use my dream life. Um, I also work in dialogue with community and we use surveys, we use interviews, we use research. Um, my personal obsession for the last decade has, and for many years, has been the environment, particularly water issues. I taught a class at UC Davis that Malakias brought me to teach uh, about 20 years ago, I guess, or maybe a little less, um, about um, border politics of um, the U.S. and Mexico. And, um, well, that wasn't the one you brought me to teach, but they kept me there, and I had to learn how to teach that one. Border economies of the Southwest. And um, one of the research projects that my students did and that I did with them was on water issues, not only in the Southwest, but throughout the world, which resulted in a mural that I have over there on a postcard, brought a bunch of stuff so you could look at it, um, called La Llorona Sacred Waters. And um, so there's a research process involved, and there's a community process, and there's um, just the inspiration of the beauty of, of life and people on an everyday basis. Um, and I don't think that, you know, anybody's ideas only generate from within them. I don't accept the model of the, you know, genius up in the garret that works. We're all standing on somebody's shoulders. We don't work as individuals. Great, thank you. All right, how about a first question at the microphone? It's a big responsibility. Um, I think all of you kind of spoke to this, but how important is it to be the voice of uh, the voice of the under underrepresented? Um, and because the Royal Chicano Air Force can be thought of as a counterculture, a counterculture movement to a lot of what was happening at the time with uh, the other painters and the other movements that were happening. How important is it to be the voice of the uh, unrepresented, please? So I'm going to repeat it for uh, everyone, including Esteban. How important is it to be the voice of the underrepresented? Uh, who would like to start first with that question? Because I... How, how important is it to be the voice of the underrepresented? because that seems to be a, a theme in the art. So the importance of being the voice for those who maybe can't speak, but you are showing. So Malachi is this, the mic. The it's quite an honor and it's uh, an incredible responsibility that we take upon ourselves to, uh, and that's why it's so important to do research for what we're doing to, so that we can, reach them and say the things properly and the right way so that we don't give uh, misinformation. Uh, so it is, it's a, tr a tremendous responsibility to speak to people and hopefully that they, uh, they understand and, it, and we have to make ourselves clear so that they can understand this. Juana. Thank you. Well, I wanted to open with this, but it wasn't quite appropriate in the moment. But this is 2018, to quote Michelle Wolf. 
This is 2018, and I'm a woman, and you can't shut me up. Unless you get Michael Cohen to wire me $130,000. <laughs> Had to steal her joke there. But, you know, in honoring her, she was speaking up the other night at the White House Correspondents' Dinner for all of the underrepresented during a period which is approaching fascism in this country. She was critiquing the press about only representing issues that relate to very few people or only listening to corporate money or only you know, being obsessed with Trump and Russia. And while we're, we're dealing with an immigration crisis where people are suffering at the border and trying to get into this country, while there's a femicide going on, while there are wars going on, while there are wedding parties being bombed in Yemen, where you know Palestine is being um, attacked. There's so many international crises, and it's our job as artists to bring those things forward. Like Michelle Wolf said the other night, in a very brave way, I thought, you know, whether she was talking about pussy hats or, you know. Bear Stearns going down on her without her permission, that kind of thing. It was funny, but it was right on. And we need to use humor and the arts and what Esteban was saying earlier to do that. And it is a, a tremendous responsibility, especially when you put a monumental piece of work on the street and it's going to be there for a long time. So you really have to think about what you're doing and you have to dialogue with others and try to be as sensitive as possible. Esteban. Yeah, how important is it to be the voice of the underrepresented? Very. <laughs> and um, because, um, let's say that not everyone feels, I don't have any talent, I don't know how to dance, sing, fight, I know, you know. And that's where the artistas come in and become the voice of the voiceless people population who will very show a lot of gratitude for somebody to show color, imagination, innovation, improvisation, uh, and uh, so that they can also learn from us. And that better be good. <laughs> no mistake, no misleading, no deception, no collusion with, you know, but it's an admiration of children. Children to me are the, are the ones that inspire me and need the ones that answers for the questions they ask. So don't, uh, like I remember once I was addressing some children in a classroom and I said, how many of you wanna grow up to be artists? You know, these are like third graders, whatever. And they said, you know what, Mr. Villa, we're already artists. And everybody clapped, you know, <laughs> and that's true. So our voice, if they can hear, our eyes, so they can see, our sense of smell, so they can smell the paints and the, <laughs> and uh, hearing and touching, touching, touching. It's a world for them to be dis to discover, to discover, and we can show them. We can show them uh, a path. We can show them a a place where they too can um, become contributors, you know, to make this a better world, a better world, because this poor world needs help. And that's where our voice comes in, you know. Now, 
the Chicano movement, okay, now we're part of an ism. There's expressionism, symbolism, uh, Dadism, uh, <laughs> and, and um, we are now more complete in creating a contribution, a cycle, a cycle to the historical uh, prominence of art in this world, not just here in Sacramento, but everywhere. So we're part of, we're part of the universe now, folks, whether you like it or not, <laughs> Chicano-ism. We're an ism now, you know? Uh, uh, and um, thanks to our teachers, we learned uh, Malakias and Montoya. We, we were trained by the Bauhaus that were uh, pr prominent during about the time in the 40s, you know, when Hitler uh, saw art as a decadent, something decadent. He thought that. So they all came to Berkeley to teach. <laughs> Remember Malakias? <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of um, professors and the, from the Bauhaus at CCAC. And uh, so, we're the voice, we're the vision, we're the imaginators, innovators, improvisationalists, jazz, you know, and something new. And the, we are to be uh, um, uh, appreciated. And I think we are now finally go to the golden one and see our latest masterpiece there. Thanks to all the panel here, Vanessa's interest, you know, in promoting, promoting the arts. Go see for yourself. Um, our murals are provocative. They're made to make you think, 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 use your mind, because the brain doesn't do any thinking. It's the mind, the mind that does the thinking, you know. So it's provocative, go there and nurture your poor, <laughs> your poor uh, needs, you know, to make this a better world. You beat me to it because I was going to save that for towards the end. I was going to uh, ask you about your latest mural at Golden One. And I know on Saturday, Cinco de Mayo, there's a, a launch party, right? Where you will be officially showing it off. Uh, to everyone, for free, it's free of Cinco charge. De Mayo, Cinco de Mayo, Dia los Muertos. Primavera. Uh, stay de Septiembre. Mm, I'm getting <laughs> hungry already. <laughs> Manishi, what, did you, I, your artistic process, if you wanted to add anything. Oh, okay, what was the question again? <laughs> artistic process, like uh, oh. getting the idea to the, to the paper, or the poster, or how you, uh, oh wait, no, I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a little, no, your responsibility. Oh, right, right, <laughs> I'm one right. question behind. You know, your responsibility for speaking, right, you know, right, for yeah. the underrepresented. Well, it is a tremendous weight because we put our artwork out front. We put it right out there for you to w walk up to it, whether you like it or dislike it, or approve of it, disapprove of it. I mean, we put our artistic life right on the line. You know, for everyone to look at and uh, criticize. Uh, when we did the butterfly, uh, during the morning sessions, there was people walking by on the way to work, and one guy stopped and was looking at the wall, and so I asked him, I was curious what he was thinking, so I asked him, what do you think about the mural? Looks like Walt Disney threw up on a wall, <laughs> you know? So you have to be open to all forms of criticism, 
whether it's positive, negative, or whatever, but it is an incredible weight. That's a very good question that you ask. The responsibility for putting out public works is, is it's an intense responsibility that doesn't come lightly. You should not take that very lightly. But there's a lot of uh, research that goes into creating a work for public art. It's a tremendous amount of research. And I don't know, my, my compatriots here, probably like me, we'll probably do a thousand drawings and maybe 20 of those drawings will end up on the wall. You know, so the, the research and the constant evolution of a mural or a design, it just keeps on going. Even after you finish, it keeps on going. So, but the, the responsibility is an incredible uh, weight. So next, next question at the mic. Um, I have two questions, one directed to um, Awana um, and one to the RCAF. Awana, I'm wondering how since the marches took place, have you had anything as passionate as that affect you, to stir you, anger you, make you want to march again or respond to something um, well, the, the farm workers, um, yes, rights, equal rights for farm workers. So the, the farm workers marches in the 70s. Yeah, I went on several marches with the UFW in the 70s, 1973, 1975, 1976. I was in two strikes, uh, Interharvest and Fresh Picked and, um, and then the Green Giant strike uh, in, in Watsonville. So um, I went on many of those marches and they were very moving because there was song and guitars and people singing and carrying the bandera de la Virgen de Guadalupe and just seeing people who were, you know, um, undocumented farm workers who were there even after Cesar Chavez made the transition to the AFL-CIO and no longer was giving um, undocumented people the same kind of protective um, care, I guess, as when he sort of made an alliance with Jerry Brown in the 70s. Um, and he had good reasons to do that. I'm not just being critical, but I'm saying that people who came out in the streets at great risk to their own personal safety and security, those were incredibly moving marches. But I have to say that the immigration marches in the last few years have also been incredibly moving. Yesterday was May Day. We saw them happening all over the world. My daughter-in-law, Sarah, and I, and my grandson, Peter, went to the big first women's march here um, two years ago in Sacramento. I was here with my, my grandson, so he had his first experience with the masses in the streets. And that was a very moving march. And then. Again, you know, on Martin Luther King Day, people have been coming out more and more in the streets. And, you know, I'm convinced that as much as we access technology and the internet, I think your question is very germane. Unless we do person to person, face to face, and we see ourselves as a mass and a strong movement, um, it's very hard to feel that we're achieving anything. And yes, we need it to build infrastructures and collaborations and alliances between our movements, between the feminist movement and the Chicano movement. You know, we had our clashes, as um, Esteban has referred to, 
in the 70s and, and 80s and 90s. And, you know, um, there have been some really strong feminists among these men, um, particularly this one here who I remember coming to San Francisco to defend a feminist uh, conflict with the Galeria de la Raza. And um, people like Juan Fuentes and others, you know, really strong feminists among some of the men or feminist advocates. Um, but there's, you know, there's been a lot of conflict over the years. So when we all show up together in solidarity, I think it gives us hope that we can make an impact on the world. Thank you. And then to the RCAF, uh, your posters, the, especially the Huega Eagle, is as iconic as the Golden Arches, in my opinion. <laughs> Who brought that? to the posters, where did it come from, whose idea, how did it happen, and what is the meaning behind it? So the poster that you're referring to in particular? The Huayga Eagle? The, the, oh, the, in general. in general, the poster in general, with the Golden Eagle. The UFW, the UFW poster, when did, yeah, I'm trying to repeat it for okay. Esteban, so he... Well, that's a good question. Ever since we started in 70, I think, somewhere in that early age, when we were doing posters for everyone, not just the UFW, but for communities, organizations, marches, benefits, baptisms, you know, tardiadas, whatever, we always included everywhere in the poster the UFW Huelga Eagle, because we wanted to keep that in the forefront of everybody's mind, that this is this is action is taking place right now, today. Don't forget that there are farm workers out there in the fields that supply your food uh, on your table every evening, or out there in the 110 weather picking and harvesting your, your fruit. And so we wanted to use that UF, the Huelga Eagle as a constant reminder the struggle is now. The struggle wasn't yesterday. It's now. And it's, uh, to this day, it is now. So that's, that's one of the reasons why we use the, the Will Eagle as our, as our logo. So next question at the mic. Well, j just to continue that, I'd like to ask uh, Juana. I have a question outside of this one. But Juana, since you were out in those fields back early, I, I, re, I went to Berkeley in 66. I missed the march in 65 um, here to Sacramento. Um, the eagle was already being used back in the mid-60s, maybe even earlier than that. Um, do you have any sense of how the eagle became to be used? And then I'll ask my question. Um, I heard this story from um, Dolores Huerta. Um, in La Paz, we had a, the, um, Dolores Huerta and um, my colleagues, the women that painted the Women's Building Mural and other colleagues on Balmiali, had a class action suit against Corbus Corporation, who owns the world's second largest collection of photos. And they were using Dolores's image, our images. Um, and I don't know if they were using the Aguila but they were violating a lot of copyrights. And we had a meeting with their vice president, um, who is, Bill Gates owns Corbus. And we had a meeting with them in La Paz. And Dolores told a story about um, the fact that, I think it was Cesar's brother who designed 
the Aguila. Oh, it's his cousin. Okay. Well, we have the art historian here. Um, yeah. Um, so it was it was Cesar's family who actually came up with the drawing and and gave it to them. Derek, do you want to tell us anything else about that? Okay. 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 Thank you. Um, <coughs> my question is. Um, because we're all sort of um, been around a long time, um, I did not know, Juana, that you had been doing the work as long as you have been. I became aware of you after 19, I'll say after 1978, working in the fields, becoming an artist in residence, um, working with women. Um, and that's when I first learned of you. Uh, the other three I've known since the late 60s with Malakias, 67 with uh, Ishii, and probably 1970 or so with, uh, I mean, with Esteban, 67, Ishii about 1969, 70. Um, and we've all been around doing a lot of things. And the marches that you referenced, uh, were just as extraordinary experiences as the first marches against the war or supporting workers uh, or fighting for ethnic studies or um, any number of issues that drew people into the streets and began to change people. The, it's the issue of change that I wanted to address and ask you about because I'm wondering if you are seeing the baton being grabbed, passed on, taken up by great numbers of people. If you feel good about the responsibility that the next generation is assuming, if you believe that all the hard work that all of you have gone through is paying dividends by either through art or consciousness or engagement uh, that gives you hope that all the early seeding that all of you made is going to result in a future uh, that has taken the mantle from all of you and is going to be carried forward. Do you have confidence in the future with this uh, generation taking on the work? I'll start with Juana, and then we, any of you can answer that after that. Thank you. Um, clearly, I feel, having taught for 40 years and having five children and three grandchildren, I have to believe in the future. I'm very proud of my son for the work he does, uh, my ch uh, other daughters for the work they do. Um, I also um, have been collaborating with the younger generation there's a mural out here that's an homage to Camarenas that um, was done by Miguel Bounce Perez and Juan Berner, who were both my well, sort of students, but m more recently my peers. We've collaborated on several projects, um, most notably a series of, um, I think it's nine murals at the um, West Oakland Youth Center in Tile. But they're, they're tearing it up here in Sacramento. And they're part of a, a collective called Trust Your Struggle. Sisi Carpio, Aaron Yoshi, Miguel Bounce Perez, um, Sean Berner. 
uh, Rob Trujillo. Most of them are my students at San Francisco State or other places. And they're just doing amazing work. Um, and then, you know, I see in my students, I just retired a year ago after 40 years of teaching, and I'm teaching one class right now. I don't think I'm going to keep doing that so much. But um, it's terrific. I think that the, um, the hip-hop generation has brought a whole new life to all of the forms we've been talking about. And it's exciting, very exciting in Mexico. There's a huge street art movement and new mural movement going on in Mexico and all around the world. So, yeah. And if any of you listen to Calle 13, that's very inspiring, too. You, you had mentioned um, in the correspondence dinner, you used the word uh, the rise of fascism. Um, I don't know how serious you meant that because that is a really serious view if, of, of our country. If you think that is happening, are you saying that you are positive that fascism is not, an American fascism is not going to take hold, take root, and, um, and see itself play out in the future? Well, I don't believe in a prescriptive view of, of the world or sort of a you know, mechanistic model like maybe old Marxism used to see things, um, not to trash Marxism, I think it's a great thing. But I think that we have to resist and push back against the kind of imperialist impulses that this country's been expressing since its founding, but that have gotten very serious with, um, you know, sort of shock and awe, um, uh, you know, uh, monopoly capitalism happening where whole cultures like Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan or Yemen or many other places have been completely destroyed militarily so that um, you know a whole new class can come in and rebuild them. Um, there's a danger of that happening in Puerto Rico right now. Um, there's, it's happening in our cities. Um, and, but I think what the, the, the um, xenophobia the efforts to start deporting people, all of those things. We saw masses of people deported in the 1930s. Diego Rivera got on the trains in Detroit handing out money so people could survive their deportations. And, and they weren't all here illegally either. So I think, I can't say that, that we have fascism, but I'm saying that the control of the press, the shutdown of print media, uh, the lack of education, the destruction of the public education system, the defunding of health and public education, I could go on, but I think that the point is that as artists and as activists, we need to speak back to that and not allow that to happen. You know, the, the Jews in Germany said that can't happen here. And I think we have an idealized, you know, sort of um, glossed over idea of what this country is and, and we're in severe trouble right now. That's my opinion. I, and I, oh no, and, and no, I'm going to, sure, because I'm going to, he, he stole my question, which was an excellent one. I was going to ask that as my last question for all of you about passing the baton on to the next generation, because you all are teachers. And so when you are uh, teaching people, you know, what you know and how to, uh, art is and activism, do you like what you see with your students 
um, what they're producing. You know, hip hop is is one theme. Chicanoism, all the isms. I guess when you see now the future of art and activism in your classroom around you, do you like what you see? So that I wanted to ask you also, Wanishi, and then finally Esteban. So that was my question. And Mike. Uh, I hope I caught it right. Uh, you know, I'm just uh, grateful that, uh, that I went into teaching because I, every morning uh, I have 30, 40 students that I can talk to, that I can uh, hopefully move in a positive direction by telling the truth. If you don't tell the truth, then you're just being... Uh, and the truth sometimes is... Uh, that's why uh, people used to get fired years ago when they're because they told the truth. And to tell the truth, uh, oh, and to tell the truth is uh, it agitates a lot of people because they don't want our students to learn the truth. Uh, the educational system in this country was not set up for people of color. It was set up for those who were going to run industry, those who were going to become bankers and all of that. And, um, and in the 1960s, when people of color entered the universities, it just threw everything around. It just sort of like throwing a monkey wrench into the, uh, the, the machine, you might say. Um, so oftentimes, uh, Students are more connected now to the consumer aspect of this country in which we live because everything is so quick, everything they can, um, and consumerism uh, is, is what's controlling and keeping a lot of these kids moving and excited and crimes that, that are taking place. There's a lot of good things that's coming out of it, is what Alicia was saying. but. Uh, yeah, we have to be very uh, conscious and very on top of everything because uh, it's really hard to fight the system. They have more money, they have more power, they, have, they can do anything. And if we don't train young people to be aware of what they're doing to them, um, we're going to lose them. We're going to lose them, and uh, those in power will continue doing what they do, and that is just to uh, keep us down. So. Wanishi. Yeah. Uh, I see both sides of that coin. You know, we are losing some because of during the uh, 90s, as we kind of took a step back from being active in the schools, here, especially in Sacramento, we kind of lost a generation that they don't know. We ask them, well, who is Cesar Chavez? You go, oh, you mean the boxing champion? I go, okay, we got a lot of work to do. You know, so we, we lost part of that. But then uh, I did a series of murals up in Oregon for about three, four years where I was uh, commissioned to paint a uh, 
a, a meeting hall like this, a labor meeting hall for a, a farm worker organization called Pecun, Pineros Campesinos Unidos in, in el Noreste. Pine workers, farm workers united in the Northwest, Pineros, pine workers, so they had a variety of different things. I painted a big mural for them and then working with students to help me do that mural. And then about eight years later, they called me back that they were building a new building and they wanted me to paint a mural all the way around it, the total exterior of this, of this building. And the building was called Capaz's Leadership Institute. So again, I worked, with that one or two summers, I worked with over 200 volunteers from all over the country, from the East Coast, there in the community, student from Paris, and student from Japan, so we came kind of like an international project. And the result of that, I saw a cadre of young artists that are still working at it with the same intent that we did, working with the community and passing on what we learned in the community. And then here in Sacramento, I see that happening Maybe not on a large scale, like maybe the impact that we did, but still there's there. I see students like uh, the, uh, Tomas Montoya. My God, what a powerful, powerful artist he is. And then the Washington Neighborhood Council with the center, what they're doing, La Familia Counseling Center, and a couple of other centers around town, that they're actively keeping what we, we started back in the 70s, they're actually keeping it alive. So yeah, the baton is being passed. And then like what my comrades said, the, the DACA and the, the immigration stuff that is threatening us every, every minute of the day. I mean, that, that, that confrontation isn't gonna go away tomorrow morning. It's gonna be pounding away at us. So how we resist that? How do we, how do we inform our young cadre that's coming up behind us? You know, we gotta keep up this struggle. I mean, we're kind of slowing down a bit because we're, we're kind of becoming the senior citizens of the, of the art world. You know, uh, it takes a lot of energy. I mean, to be on the front lines day and night, which we used to be for up until about maybe 2000, we literally were on the front lines day and night. And, and to keep that energy up, I mean, you need constant transfusion of the blood you know, so, yeah, I see both sides of it, but a good, but a good positive. And Esteban, last word uh, comes from you. The, we were just talking about passing the baton on to the next generation of activist artivists, artists. How do you see the baton being passed? Is it, are you, hap are you proud? Do you feel good about that? Well, I think I can answer that by paraphrasing uh, one of my uh, uh, teachers, uh, Pablo Picasso, Spaniard, who taught us a different way of seeing the same world. So all of you here and out there, you see the different, a world different than everybody else. And that's what he taught us, you know, cubistic. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Jackson Pollock, we, we, in, high, in college we call him Jack the Dripper, you know, because he's always dripping, <laughs> he's be a dripping paint. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, they asked Picasso once, what was his, his favorite painting that he ever did? And he said, uh, my next one. And, uh, and he said, what do you mean your next one? <laughs> 
And he says, I'm still looking to paint the perfect painting. And uh, passing the baton here to the next generation, and uh, don't drop it, okay? Because <laughs> you lose your race and all the work that all of us here have done, uh, it's gonna be like somebody uh, gra putting graffiti over a mural, you know? Um, and so um, uh, he, he taught us um, that, uh, um, that um, the next one, our next mural, right, our next paint, we have come up, this group right here, with innovations in muralism, new paints, acrylics, uh, you know, uh, polyurethane materials, uh, modern stuff, you know, because the idea of painting with a, a turpentine Okay, that's not good, because it fades, it's toxic, and not, no bueno, not good. So, um, and then uh, uh, my, my feeling is that uh, we need to never uh, um, lose the connection between the universities and the city. The, Art movement didn't start in a street corner, smoking, you know what. <laughs> but in fact, I think that all of us here, uh, Malakias, can testify that uh, the university had everything to do with what we're seeing today. I've never seen so many murals in Sacramento driving around. They are everywhere. Women painting murals under the freeways, children doing murals in schools that we haven't even seen yet. <laughs> and, um, and making a living off of it too, by the way, you know? So we need to um, remind the city of Sacramento that the university, Sacramento State University, are um, part of the cycle, part of the cycle and um, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just need to understand that murals, art, has to be uh, well thought out, intelligent, uh, uh, provocative, so you can challenge the mind. And, uh, and uh, if you were to ask me <laughs> what I personally feel deep inside, might be the finishing race and, and this movimiento would be the next great art is going to be architectura, architecture. They're designing schools by the artists that's safe from some uh, safalos <laughs> that go in there easily, shoot through windows and poor work uh, schools, uh, you know, architects can help to make beautiful schools and serve, serve to protect the children. There's some children right there, look at them. <laughs> uh, to protect them from harm. And the artists, the architects, because architecture is a culmination 
of todo, everything. It's got uh, sculpture, it's got uh, poetry, it's got, uh, uh, um, um, you know, uh, everything. Uh, um, Artistry. Huh? Artistry. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of beautiful artwork in there, too, stained glass windows, you know. So to me, architecture is, is next, okay? So watch out, Sacramento. We might be designing some really artistic uh, um, designs in architecture that are going to be our finally finishing line. And don't take your ATM card to heaven. It's the only thing you can take up there is what you leave behind. We're leaving murals, music, dance, folklorico, Cinco de Mayo, and don't forget to shot of tequila. <laughs> On that thank note. You, thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. Our yes, panel thank you, Juana. Wanishi Esteban, thank you for all the great stories, all your contributions to art and to us. And I just want to say before we wrap it up, Wana did bring art uh, for you to see. Don't forget Saturday, Golden One Center uh, flight. And um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you all for attending. I learned a lot. I hope you did too. And we'll say good night. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Groundbreaker Q&A conversation was held on May 2nd, 2017 at our new permanent space, the Church Basement in Midtown Sacramento. A special thanks to Art Aguilar, Max Achuleta, Juan Carrillo, Leslie Sakowitz Montoya, and the Latino Center of Art and Culture in California for helping us put this event together. Also thanks to our event volunteers, Scott Eggert, Deb Colleen, and Alan Young. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. <laughs>